0: church. Well, we're continuing in the book of John. We are getting real close to the world's most famous verse, right? Some of you are like, oh, we just read one more. I know that one. Um, and, and as it's always helpful, context is, is uh, very illuminating whenever you, you've heard a verse so long quoted and maybe it's just lifted out of context. When you see what's going on around it, it'll bring a lot of um, explanation and, and really glory to the passage of John 3.16. So I'm looking forward to getting to that. But we're going to spend some time in the first part of chapter 3, uh, for really a couple weeks, so I had you read the whole thing. I, I decided uh, I, I will not be able to cover the whole thing. So we're going to get to about verse 8 today, um, but we are gonna, we're going to get into uh, this passage. Man, it, it is on now. Jesus brought a whip to church last week, and he's has, he has started something, right? He, uh, there's a scene in Braveheart where uh, he, he rallies uh, all of the, uh, you know, the, the Scottish people, you know, the, the farmers and all the, the, the laymen out there you know, about you know, they could take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom, right? And then he goes out to the, you know, the leaders are like, all right, cool, now what? And they're like, well, you be you. And what are you going to do? He says, I'm going to go pick a fight, right? This is Jesus. He picked a fight last week. Like, he has launched his ministry. He is calling disciples. He is stirring up God's people. He has sent John the Baptist ahead saying, the kingdom is coming, right? He's got disciples, and he's now he's going, okay, we're, he's about to toe, like, up against the, the powers of darkness. He has come to overthrow sin, death, and the grave. And it launches with this ministry. And so we see that that, that momentum, that, the conflict now is, is really in full view between the religious leaders and Jesus. Um, and there's also a growing crowd of people who are seeing uh, the, the power of Jesus and they're beginning to follow him. And that's where we, we pick up in verse 23 of chapter 2. And as is common, um, the, the verse and chapter um, divisions are helpful in finding verses. And remembering where they are, they are not always helpful in understanding the larger context because sometimes they cause us to sort of pause and think we're in, in you know we need to have a new thought when when really this is this is John has put all this together and so uh, we 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 did that on purpose it wasn't just we didn't have time to cover 23 and 24 and 25 last week so we just grouped it in here I th- I think it actually sets that up better and ties the whole thing together so we see in verse 23 of chapter two. That while he's in Jerusalem at at the Passover feast, evidently Jesus does other signs and miracles. John doesn't record them all. He just has about seven really intentional signs that he's going to record for a purpose of what he's communicating in his gospel. But he himself admits there's so much he could write about what Jesus did. So much so, he said it would fill all the books, we'd run out of room, right? Um, And so we know that he's doing other signs while he's there in Jerusalem. And it is causing many people to, verse 23, believe in his name because of the signs that he was doing. That's the point of the signs. That's the point of the Gospels, that people would believe in Jesus. But it says that Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. So in the Greek, that's actually the same word, that many people believed in his name or entrusted themselves to him or put their faith in him. And then he says, but Jesus did not do the same. He didn't put his faith in them. He didn't entrust himself to them. What's going on there? Really, John is saying uh, Jesus wasn't impressed by the crowds that he's beginning to draw. He didn't come to, uh, you know, just draw a crowd and impress a bunch of people and grow uh, a church or a brand or whatever. Right? Uh, he's not entrusted. He, he's not, there's going to be multiple times throughout the story of Jesus where they try to make him king and he will step aside and, and elude it. That is not his plan. He does not uh, come and for the accolades and the praise of man. That was not his intention. That's not what he's interested in, and so that's not what he's doing. And so uh, they're, they're putting their faith in him, but he's not excited about this. He's not going to go there. Why? Because he knows what is in them. It says that he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about uh, man because he himself knew what was in man. Now, there's a lot to that. We say, I, I, I usually start, most of our services by saying, hey, whatever you're bringing in here, the Lord already knows, right? And I'm trying to do that as a comfort for you because so often we hide, so often we have our stories. We don't feel like anybody could actually hold our story because it's too much. If they knew or if so-and-so, even our spouses, our families, certainly the people around us, we, we keep a facade, we keep a, a, a mask about our life, we, we, we curate an image through our social media about how our life looks, right? And so we don't want anybody to think, oh, we're actually human, we actually struggle, right? And so we say often here at The Journey, we don't want to pretend, right? Because it's foolish. The Lord already knows. He knows your secrets. He knows your stories. He knows your guilt. He knows your shame. He knows your fears. And guess what? He's not running you out. He didn't meet you at the door and say, no, 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 you're too jacked up. I, I, I know your story. I've seen your, your life. You're not welcome here. you got to clean yourself up before you come into the house of the Lord. No, no. What does he say? He says, your sins are, they got you as red as scarlet. You're filthy as can be. But come here. Come here. I'll make them white as snow. Your burdens, they're heavy. Come here. I'll take them from you. You're broken. Come here. Let me heal you. Right, so yes, it's unnerving to, to if you walked into a room and thought, "Man, somebody has seen the the play-by-play of what the, all the thoughts that you've had. Like they have the the security footage from your brain, and they've watched it, and now they've invited you into a room to confront you. If we, ooh, what if we played it on the screen? It'd freak you out, right? You don't want anybody knowing that nonsense? You're terrible." How do I know? Because I'm terrible. Jesus knows what is in us. And yet, the one who knows the most about us is the one who has loved us the greatest. The one who knows the most about you. Romans 5.8 says, This is how God has shown his love for the world, that while you were still a sinner, Christ has died for you, for us. That's the love of God on display. That is who Jesus is. The world has forgotten about him. They don't, they're not giving him a second thought. We saw that in the prologue, John chapter 1. He's come to his own, but his own didn't receive him. The world didn't know him. But the creator has been forgotten about by his creation, but the creator hasn't forgot about his people. He is here, and he knows what's in a man, and yet he's going forward with his mission. And so this tells us a couple things. He won't be swayed by their attention, right? He knows That these people are shallow and a selfish people, they will use his signs, his glory, his ability to do miracles. They will use it for their agenda. They will they will put him up on a pedestal. They will make a brand out of him. They will accomplish their purposes with him. And then, when he no longer serves them, when he confronts them and they don't like what he's saying, they will kill him. How does Jesus know? They've done it to profit after profit after profit. Jesus tells a parable later about about the you know the father sending servant after servant, and they, each people each each one keeps getting killed until the point that he sends his own son. Jesus knows that these people, uh, their, their fascination with him, their interest in him is shallow. They're they're, they're here for the show. We're going to see in John chapter six he's going to run a bunch of them off because they showed up for the show again. And he goes, hey, I'm not doing shows. You got to." You drink my blood and eat my flesh. And he just lets it sit there. And they're all like, whoa, I didn't know we were signing up for this. Like, and they leave. Runs them off. Right? So he's not going to be swayed by this attention. It's not, like he knows people will use him. And, and the second thing we're going to see, the, the reason this connects these stories is because we see that Jesus knows um, the heart and the motives of everyone that he's interacting with. And this is why this is connected, because in this next section, we're going to see Jesus interact with Nicodemus and then eventually the woman at the well. And in both of those interactions, we're going to see that Jesus gets right to the heart of the issue. He answers questions they don't explicitly ask. He gets to the heart of their unbelief. He gets to the heart of their stories. He knows what's in them, and instead of playing around with the diplomatic, like, You know, pleasantries or whatever, he comes right for their heart. So here you are today. You don't know what Jesus has in store for you. You don't know why you're here at the journey, but you're here. Here's what I want you to know: He knows your story and he loves you so fiercely that he's not gonna play around with coddling you and what like no, he's coming for your heart because he loves you. Okay, so we see now there's a man. Right, this this man of the Pharisees. This man connects us back to the the, the man that didn't know him, the mankind in general. Uh, in, in chapter one, it, it connects us back to the previous verse where Jesus knew what was in man. Right now, there is one of those men coming toward him, coming to him in the night. His name's Nicodemus. He's a man of the Pharisees and a ruler of the Jews. Okay, so so here's what we're going to see. Jesus is going to teach us today is that in order to see, to enjoy, to enter in to the kingdom of God, you must be born again. That's it. That's the big idea for today. You must be born again. Now, we're, we're familiar with that, right? Those of you who have been around a little while, you know Jimmy Carter kind of you know, stated that coming into his presence. I'm a born-again Christian, and right? And then Chuck Colson wrote a book called Born Again. And so for a while, that was pretty normal kind of uh, language used around just being a, a Christian, born-again Christian, but a lot of times we, we see, okay, uh, you know, we, we kind of use that to describe a certain type of Christian or a certain type of person and their conversion, but first thing we're going to see is who, who is this new birth for? Jesus is going to say it's required to be a Christian, to see the kingdom, to enter into the kingdom. You have to be born again. This is what he's going to say, and the first thing we're going to see is who is it for? Because here's Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a man of the Pharisees. This is the religious um, group uh, party, if you will, uh, the mo- one of the most influential parties uh, in Jesus' day as far as the religious people go. They are, they are very into their piety. They're very into their religious achievements and all that they've done. In fact, the word Pharisee comes from a Hebrew word to mean separated. These are people who have said, "We are not going to be filthy. We are not going to be, uh, you know, associated with the nastiness of the world." So, in addition to God's law, we're going to add a whole bunch of other laws, and we're going to hold everybody to this standard. And we're going to be really pious and really righteous, and we're going to look down our nose at everybody else and call them to to. They're going to lay this extra burden on everybody in, you know, the Jewish world. And we, Jesus is going to use his harshest language in his most intense confrontation for this group of people. We've already seen them interact. They're the ones that send somebody out to go see John in the wilderness and say, Who are you? Right? We, didn't, we didn't approve somebody being out here baptizing. Like, we didn't approve somebody out here baptizing in the Jordan River. Who are you? Right? This is that same party. So Nicodemus belongs to this, this group called the Pharisees, but he's, he's unique because he also belongs to the Sanhedrin. He's a ruler. And we, we know from kind of the historical context and some of the biblical context that he's wealthy. And so Nicodemus becomes this very uh, representative figure that is someone who is kind of able to speak on behalf of all the Jews, right? And he's going to use the language of we have heard. And so Nicodemus c- becomes this, this guy who is, man, he's wealthy, and he's religiously educated, he's incredibly well respected right this is This is a guy uh, who was a member of both the religious elite and financial and political elite and so if anybody can kind of go to this new leader, this movement this troublemaker slash miracle worker slash you know rabbi, and see okay, well like, who are you what's what's behind all of this and sort of have a representative feel for the the Jewish people at large, I mean, it, Nicodemus makes sense. And so he comes as a ruler of the Jews, as a Pharisee, and he comes to Jesus by night. Now, there's a lot of speculation about why he comes at night. In fact, this passage is, is pretty, uh, pretty debated, and commentators do not agree on a whole lot of things uh, about this passage. And so, uh, but frankly, we don't know a ton about why he comes at night. It could be. For cover. It could be because he wants to have a kind of a, a, a secret meeting with Jesus. Because he's from a political party and a religious party that is already posturing up to be against Jesus. And so for him to go and meet with them in a friendly way is that's risky from a reputation standpoint. It could be that. It could be, actually, there's, there's lots of evidence that say this is when the Bible was studied, was actually at night. And so there was a lot of conversations that, that happened and flowed out of that. So it could have been a natural sort of, you know, uh, stage where, where they're just having this conversation. Or it could be he was just busy during the day, right? And he just came at night. There might not be a whole lot more to it, but... I think we can let John actually give us our greatest hint. As a writer, we've already seen that John is brilliant with his language and giving us layered meanings with single words and phrases. And so every other time that John uses the word night in his gospel, he's referring to moral and spiritual darkness. Every time it, it, this word, this Greek word is used, it's, it's referring to a, a kind of a, a, a metaphorical, Talking about the darkness of a physical world, right, when the sun goes down, but it's, it's having an implication of spiritual and moral darkness. And so I think what we can know is that, the, that John is telling us Nicodemus comes to Jesus as a lost man, as a man who knows a lot about the Word of God. He knows a lot about what gets him prestige in the world, but he knows nothing about salvation and the things of God. He is lost. He is morally um, and religiously superior to everybody else in the culture, and yet he's as far from God as anybody has ever been. I think that is what John is communicating to us when he says he comes by night, and here's what he says to Jesus as he shows up. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with them. Now, for for Nicodemus to call Jesus Rabbi, teacher is significant it carries a whole lot more weight than the the blue-collar disciples that had called him rabbi and chose to follow him earlier in in the book. Why? Because Nicodemus himself was a teacher. Nicodemus himself was one who held the the law of God and, and carried down the oral traditions and was very, like to be a Pharisee, man, you had to have an incredible education and a memorization of God's word that was really like several levels up from the average person. And so he himself is a teacher. So for him to extend this title to Jesus is, is one of respect and, and, uh, and, I, and I think genuineness. Now, there's, I read one commentator that wanted to put this whole um, in, you know, this whole conversation in the context of kind of a challenge discourse where this is actually a bit of a mockery and, and Nicodemus is kind of calling Jesus out to have this, this challenge. I, and I know why that, that theory exists, but I don't think the rest of the Bible actually uh, gives, I, I don't think it's necessary. Um, I think what we know of Nicodemus is pretty fascinating, actually. And you're going to see Nicodemus two other times in the Gospel of John. One time is going to be in chapter 7 whenever his party, the Pharisees, are wanting to arrest him, they're wanting to arrest Jesus. And Nicodemus is like, hey, like, do we just do that without a trial? Like, he's kind of showing favor. He speaks up amongst his corrupt cronies, his other guys, and says, whoa, 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 like, do do we really have cause? So you can read about that in chapter 7, 45 through 52. Uh, So that's the next time that we see Nicodemus. He's sort of favoring or or, or leaning toward Jesus' side. And then we're going to see him again at the crucifixion where he shows up and is there alongside Joseph of Amarthia, that, that the guy who, who loaned him his grave, and they go and ask for the body of Jesus, and they go and ensure that the body gets a proper burial. They begin to you know, prepare his body for death and get him into the grave. And so that, that's the rest of what we know about Nicodemus. And so I, I think... I think we can read into this. I think we could see a guy coming with with a genuine posture of like, man, I see you, Jesus. I see you doing some things that nobody else is able to do. And we don't know what to do with you because you just like made a whip in the temple, right? And you're calling people out and you made water into wine. Like, we don't know what to do with you, but no one has this kind of power and authority unless they've been sent from God. So this is, this, is, this is what he says. Now, it's interesting because often we just start reading Jesus' reply. But if you notice, Nicodemus didn't really ask a question. Look at verse 2. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Okay? That's it. That's a statement. Right? Maybe he's inviting a response to be sure. But Jesus, remember, knows what's in a man. He knows his heart. He knows what Nicodemus is bringing. He knows the angst. He knows the legitimate like curiosity and like, the, the, the right motive of Nicodemus wanting to know more about this. And he also knows the reservation. He knows the reasons that, that Nicodemus is struggling to believe. He knows the reasons why he wouldn't believe. He knows the reasons why the political party that he's a part of is calling him not to believe. Like He knows all of that. And so Jesus responds... With his own, he takes the conversation in his own direction. Verse 3, Jesus says, "...Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God." And Nicodemus is like, hey, uh, like, cool, but I don't understand. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus says, "...Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God." That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel. I said this. You have got to be born again. We'll talk about it later. But Jesus kind of takes this conversation and he goes, "Nicodemus, I know you're coming with questions. I know you're 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 wondering if I'm the Messiah. You're wondering what's going on. I'm just going to go ahead and I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. You're not going to get there by an ele- intellectual ascent." Nicodemus, you're not going to get there by just getting some more information. I know why you're here, Nicodemus. I, like, and I know that you kind of have a, a sense of stirring in you. Right? Some people had moved, been moved to believe in Jesus because of his signs. We don't see quite that level of, of commitment from, from Nicodemus because he's not all in with Jesus, but it did spark him. The signs did spark him to have this conversation with Jesus. And so... Jesus looks at him and says, hey man, um, the old way of doing things, the way that you and your party and, and the people have thought you get the kingdom of God by being righteous, by following the law, by being better than others, he says, it won't work. It's not able to work. Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you got to be born again anybody has to be born again. This is what Jesus says. Unless one, he doesn't say you. This this is generally speaking. Jesus is saying, unless something else happens, unless something changes, no one is going to see the kingdom of God. There is a requirement there. Jesus says this truly, truly. This is Uh, this is amen amen this is uh, verily verily this is a this is jesus saying like listen if there's anything true if i could get your attention like you need to pay close attention to this this is what i know for sure this is the most important thing i can tell you jesus is setting this up saying truly truly i say to you unless one is born again he cannot see the kingdom of god now this is incredible because again, we know about being born again. Like we, we'll talk about what it is, but I want to talk about who it's for first. Because again, we know some people need to be born again, don't we? Is there a mess? You got some people on your list. You're like, yeah, they need like they need it. They need to be born again. It's the only way, right? They're a mess. We know there's people whose life is a wreck. They're addicts. They're 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 they're. Um, they're drunkards, they're, they're just, they're a mess, they're suicidal, they're depressed, there's no way, you've tried to help them, you've tried to give them a hand up, and you just can't get, they can't get anywhere, you can't get anywhere and, and man, they're on the margins of society, they're struggling with their life and we're all like, yeah, I get it, like they need to be born again or there's some people who just are really spiritual or, or really drawn to kind of a charismatic edge, right, they, they like the experience, they like the the, the sort of um, you know, the feeling and the emotional highs that can come from church. And so those people are like, yeah, I'm born again, brother. Like they got that, like, they, they pursue this, uh, this, this language of being born again, and, and it kind of gets put there. But, but so we, we get it. Those people like, all right, cool, being born again. But, but Nicodemus? Like, if anybody's all right, it's so Nick. He's doing pretty well, right? He's, he's super moral. He's wealthy. he seems even to be level-headed, frankly, right? Like this is a guy who is actually kind of nuanced in his views. He doesn't get drawn into the the partisan nonsense, right? And, and so, man, Nicodemus is coming. Many people come and they're like, "Hey, you know my, like I just need a little boost. I just need a little just top me off. My, my life's okay, but like maybe I could use a little Jesus just just kind of." This kind of topped me off. Maybe I just need somebody to help me, kind of push me over the edge. I, I could use a little spirituality in my life, but, but I'm good. No, no. Jesus says, no, no. Unless one, unless anyone, unless people are born again, they will not see, let alone enter into the kingdom of heaven. So who is it for? It's for everybody. It's the, the new birth is required for any and everyone to see and to enter into the kingdom of God. There is not a way to ascend into Christianity, to ascend into favor with God by your good works, by your knowledge, by your, your study, period. It doesn't matter who you are unless you are born again. You will not enter, you will not see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus, like I said, it's, he's got some questions. Um, I, you know, I, I don't think he's, Quite so dense to just be like, well, I don't think my mom's going to let me back in, Jesus. I don't think he's—I don't think he thinks Jesus is being literal, but he asks the question. He kind of bites, right? Like, okay, I'll track with you. I'll give you this whole new birth thing, but like, how's that supposed to play out? How's somebody supposed to, you know, uh, be born when they are old? How how can you enter into your your mother's womb a second time and be born? And Jesus says, teacher of the law. Bible expert. This is where it starts to turn. In order to make sense of what Jesus says, you've got to remember both that Jesus knows what's in Nicodemus's heart and that Nicodemus is a scholar, that he is a teacher of the law. Because what Jesus is going to begin to point him to is this incredible fulfillment of what God had promised in this incredible story, specifically in Ezekiel 36 and 37. Y'all know the Valley of the Dry Bones? Y'all know this, this story of, 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 of God saying, listen, my people, basically, he brings Ezekiel, saying, this is the state of my people. They're dead. They're not just kind of dead. They're not like barely hanging in there. Maybe we get some paddles and wake them back up. Like, they're, they're dried up. Dead. How are they going to live? Ezekiel goes, Lord, you know. <laughs> I love his answer. He's like, ah, I'm sure you got a plan. I have no idea. God goes, prophesy, tell them, tell them to live. And, and these bones start to come to life, and then he's going to tell them to breathe. So here's, Jesus is going to, now, he doesn't say this explicitly, but he's, he's unpacking this incredible truth of who he is whenever he says, listen, Nicodemus, verse 5, pay attention, truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen, this is what has to happen, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Of God, So, so he, he's pointing us back, like he's pointing us to this incredible story, this incredible truth that God had said would happen in Ezekiel 36. He, he tells his people, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you, from the inside, I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Okay, so here's the deal. This verse right here, John chapter 3, verse 5, has caused a lot of people to build out a doctrine of baptism being required for salvation, right? Because it says, unless you're you're born uh, of water and of the spirit, okay, and so some will say, okay, that's an allusion, that's a reference to being Ba- you know, water baptism, and so you have to be baptized, you know, to to have your sins cleansed, that the, that that baptistry is actually doing the cleansing of our sins, and unless you have that, and a regeneration, and a new birth from the Spirit, then you aren't saved. There are denominations that believe that, teach that, and and, and, I, and I, I, I get, like, the heart behind that, but this is not what this is saying, and then you, you kind of have to use the old, you know, kind of proof text of the thief on the cross that clearly says you don't have to be dunked in water to be in the kingdom of God because he's there with Jesus on the cross, sees Jesus for who he is, calls out for mercy, and Jesus tells him, hey, today you'll be, me, be with me in paradise. Jesus doesn't say, man, I appreciate you believing, and if they'd let you down and get dunked, you can come party with me. But no water, no kingdom. He doesn't. I don't mean to mock. I'm just saying like there is a story there that stands and you got to let scripture interpret scripture. Okay. And so frankly, it's not really clear why Jesus uses this language and doesn't just talk about the spirit. But I think the most clear thing is for us to anchor ourselves back in Ezekiel 36, because even in Ezekiel 36, there's this incredible moment that's about to come from the breath of God that's going to cause these bones to come back to life. But before that, he talks about what? Water cleansing. He talks about a cleansing that happens from the Spirit. This new birth requires a cleansing, not just a, a stirring of you know, new life from death, but, but a, a cleansing. So Ezekiel has this... this vision with with God gives him this vision to tell this people, hey, you are not only dead, but you're unclean. And in order to be with me, in order for you to be my people and me to be your God, you have to be cleansed and brought back to life. And so this is what Jesus is is unpacking. And then we we see in Ezekiel 37, it goes on this incredible story, the Valley of the Dry Bones. I'm going to read part of this to you where, where he says The hand of the Lord is upon me, and he brought me out of the spirit of the Lord, and he sent me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, right? And and this is an incredible picture of of God, like, showing him around to these bones. And behold, there were many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. Not, again, not like freshly, they're very dry. This is all incredible imagery, and he says, can these live? And I I already said, (laughs) Ezekiel's like, "Uh, I bet you know. Um, Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, oh dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God of these bones, bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and cause flesh to come over you. It's incredible imagery to cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Of course you would. You see that happening. Nobody leaving there is an unbeliever, right? You see, bones come back to life. They're going to be like, uh, yep, yeah, I'm in with him. Whoever, whoever did that, I'm following him. Right? So, yeah, you'll know that I am the Lord. So, he, Ezekiel does what he's told, and he prophesied, and there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone, and looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. Behold, there, but there was no breath in them. This is, this is, again, John has set us up with the creation and who Jesus was. He's the creator, and he's saying Jesus is here to do new creation, Now this, here in Ezekiel, is bringing us to this place. Sinews, flesh, has reformed the body, and yet what? There's no breath in them. Remember, he makes Adam, makes him out of the dirt. He's laying there, but then what? He has to breathe life into him. Okay, And so there's no breath in them. So he says to me, prophesy to the breath, and, and prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, this is going to be relevant to us later, Uh, O breath, and breathe on the slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and they stood on their feet, a huge army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of God. These are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up, our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore, prophesy, say to them, use this imagery. All of this is given to the point of a message to his people so that God's people would know the kind of salvation work that he's going to do. Right? So he uses this imagery and says, go tell my people. Behold, I will open up your graves and I will raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord and when i open your graves and raise you from your graves on my people i will put my spirit within you and you shall live and i will place you on your own land and then you shall know that i am the lord i have spoken i will do it declares the lord this is an incredible story isn't it this is given hundreds of years before jesus shows up jesus is saying hey nick it's about to happen your Your rules, Nicodemus, your your righteousness through being better than other people, your religious spirituality, you want to know how I see you from heaven? You want to know how I I see a people that are trying to be righteous through their efforts of morality? Y'all are dead. You're dead, dried bones. Ephesians 2 tells us, doesn't it? Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, unless God does this kind of work, that wasn't just a fun story in Ezekiel, unless he does this kind of miraculous saving work, nobody's going to see the kingdom. But guess what? I'm here to bring the kingdom. Now, for Nicodemus, the kingdom would have been something in the future right? We, we have this language of kind of already not yet, the kingdom of God. And it's mysterious to us. We don't fully understand it, but for Nicodemus, he would have only had a category of the future. In fact, John doesn't use the kingdom of God hardly ever in his gospel. Now, Matthew, that's his thing over and over again, the kingdom of God. That's, that's, that's his thesis, his message, the kingdom of God is here. John doesn't use this language much, and so there is a particular um, reference, I think, that John is drawing our attention to but when Jesus is saying the kingdom of God. Nicodemus would have thought future. So what does this mean? Well, again, this even helps us understand a little bit of, 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 the, of the draw here because this idea of the kingdom of God would have been something in the future. It would have been the palogenesia, this is a Greek word that, that talks about this renewal of the earth. Now, the Greeks thought that, that um, history wasn't really linear, but rather was cyclical. And that every, every few, you know, whatever, periods of, of history, there was sort of this, re, you know, wipe and start over. Right? You had to, you know, do that, like restore factory settings on your iPhone. Right? Or, I don't know what you do if you have uh, an Android. Throw it away. I don't know. But <laughs> you got you to gotta start Technology over, right? This is how we operate. And so the Greeks kind of thought, this is how you do it, right? This is what's going to happen. There's this reset. So for them, the palingenesia was something that happened like, repeatedly throughout history. And this is, the langu- this is what would have been drawn in this idea of the kingdom would have been talking about the palogenesia. The, only, the other time that it's used is in Matthew 19, when Jesus is talking about the end, when he's sitting on his throne, the time of judgment, and the earth is being made new, the palogenesia is, is that moment. So Jesus is saying, yeah, you're right to know that there will be a moment when the whole world is made new, but it will not be on repeat. There will not be multiple Palagenesia, There will be one. And guess what, who will be responsible for it? Guess what, who will be sitting on the throne in that moment? Jesus says, it's me, right? Titus chapter 3 verse 5 um, sort of explicitly says that it uses the same language around this this uh, this palogenesia. The same word there is talking about the, this moment whenever we are washed in the regeneration, right? So this idea of washing is tied to regeneration, this new life, right? And renewal of the Holy Spirit, right? So here we have again this idea of the water and... The spirit creating new life. Like this is so again, this 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 reference to water. I don't think we have to run far and wonder do we have to be baptized in order to be saved? I I think we can see that this is a part of the language tying in the entire scripture of what God has been doing and said that He would do. And he's saying, There will be a day whenever I come. We talk about this often. The, The fullness of salvation, that we have been saved from our penalty of sin. Amen? You've been justified. If you know Jesus, if you've trusted in Jesus and said, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and Jesus, I believe that you are that Savior, then you are saved. And what that means is you're forgiven, no longer condemned, washed clean, given a clean slate, now seen through the eyes of God as Jesus' righteousness. You're justified. You will no longer be held accountable, no longer be on the hook for the penalty of sin. But then we are being saved. Paul uses weird language, which makes some people think we've got to earn it. It's not the case. Being saved is, is a matter of becoming more and more like Jesus. We call it sanctification. We are being saved from the power of sin. There's an increasing holiness. We meet Jesus. We are saved. We're forgiven. The Spirit dwells us. Now until we die or he comes back, there's this process of becoming more and more like him. But one day, we will be saved. So, we have been saved, we are being saved, and one day we will be saved from the presence of sin. But that's what's coming. We wonder about this world, we wonder about this earth. Is God going to come and kind of wad this earth up and and get rid of it, burn it all, get us off of this deal so that, you know, He he says, I'm coming to remake it. The fire in, in and first Peter is a, is a refining, a, a, a making new fire, burning away all the impurities so that what God intended to exist will be there in its fullness. This is what God is doing. He's going to remake the whole world. That's what's coming at the end of the age. That's what we look forward to, joining Jesus in his resurrection. So what's going on here in this dialogue when Jesus says, hey, um, you got to be born again, and he's referencing the palogenesia, this idea of remaking, renewal, washing, cleansing, and remaking. What, what's that about? Well, here's the deal. You've got to ask some honest questions like Nicodemus. How? Okay, we've got to be born again. Like, how? Nicodemus is like, yeah, cool, but I can't, I don't think Mom's going to be cool with that. How? Jesus says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. What does it mean? The physical birth brings us into the realm of the flesh. We know what that's like. We get it. The spiritual birth, is that produces the spirit. That gives us the ability to enter into the spiritual realm and to, to... have the things of the Spirit be clear to us. This is the, the scales falling off. But how does it happen? It says it happens. The same power that's going to happen to remake the whole world, the resurrection power that we look forward to, that is, is coming from the future into our present and making us new. That's what causes the new birth. So if we believe that God has the power to remake the world, and and we do believe that, amen, that that is how we are made new, that is how we are given new birth, is that power of the resurrection, that power of the panagentia, the washing, the cleansing, and the remaking of the world, how are we made new? How are we given new birth? It's when that power comes into our present time and causes us to be born again. So back to whatever you're bringing in here, whatever junk you think you got, whatever, you know, whatever trump card you think that make you too filthy for the Lord to, to cleanse or to accept. Listen, don't underestimate the power of the new birth. Don't underestimate the power of the of the resurrection of Jesus. Romans 8. Man, this is an incredible passage, church. Do y'all know this? Romans 8? We just celebrated Easter. Were y'all here? Jesus is alive. Y'all still good with that? Okay. I'm wondering, you're a little sleepy today. Romans 8, 9, and 11 says, You, however, are not of the flesh, but in the Spirit. And if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong in Him. This is not an option. You can't be a Christian and not have the Spirit, not be born again. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is what? Life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, what? If the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in who? Spiritually righteous people are just. Who? in, In you? In us? What? If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead also gives life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. It's incredible. That's where the new birth comes from. That's what, and, and what does it do? It causes a whole new reality to come into, Jesus says you can't see the kingdom of God without being born again. You've gotta be born again, right? We saw that in uh, 1.18. He says, um, you know, no one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side, but Jesus is making him known. Verse 51 of chapter one, he says to, to the newly, uh, you know, come disciples, he says, listen, you're gonna see some awesome stuff. You will see heaven opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending into the Son of Man. It, it's, it's, you're going to be able to see a, a whole new reality. What, is, what does this mean? Again, what's born of the, of the flesh, we get that. The flesh makes flesh. The Spirit gives life to the Spirit. We are able to see and experience and know things. Maybe, you've, maybe this is your story. Um, you, maybe you grew up in church. And I've heard people say, man, I grew up in church, but I never heard the gospel. Well, maybe you went to a bad church and never told you the gospel. Or maybe it wasn't until the moment of new birth that you heard the gospel and responded to the gospel. Why? Because God did something in you that caused you to be born again. What happens in that moment? Well, let's let's look at the physical birth. Let's think about what happens when a baby is born. Right, they're they're brought into the world and they're brought from the womb and they've got some senses going on in there. I got to imagine it's a little muddled with all the amniotic fluid and stuff, but they can kind of hear. They could see some light, whatever. But but imagine that moment of being brought out of the womb and into this this world of all of this like incredible stimulus. Can you imagine? First time really hearing, first time really seeing, first time you're going to taste soon, feel like light, warmth, cold, all of that's happening at once, right? Because why? Right, you're out of the womb and there's this new life and, and you're able to, your senses are, you're, are now able to experience these things. This is what's happening in the new birth. We are now spiritually attuned. We are able to see a broader purpose in the world, a broader meaning to our life. We're able to see the gospel is good news for me because I needed it, and Jesus has saved me. And now people that that once were, man, from all sorts of different types of life are now brought together because of the new birth. We get it. People that are busted up, Jesus saves them, we're like, man, praise God, their life's really turned around. But at the same time, the religious person who thought they had it good enough, thought they had it figured out, they meet Jesus and their life is completely turned around. It's, it's an incredible testimony to the power of God. This new birth gives us a new sensibility, a new ability to sort of process the world and into the spiritual realm, to see the kingdom of God, to enter the kingdom of God you must be born again. Jesus is going to go on to say, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. What in the world? Jesus is just like all kinds of weird stuff. He loves to say weird stuff. But, but again, all of this, I think makes more sense in Ezekiel. Because there, the, 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 the spirit The the word for spirit and wind are are actually the same in the Greek, pneuma, and and he says the spirit goes where it wants, it blows where it wants, and he says it's mysterious because you can't tell it where to go, you can't know where it's coming from, you can't know where it's going, but you know what you can do? You can see what it does. The same is true of the wind. We were fishing uh, Friday with my kids out of my my parents' pond, and and one of them was frustrated at the wind because it was blowing their lure this way, right, and it was fussing about the wind. I was like, how'd you know it was the wind? Because I've been studying this passage, you're like, I don't know, it's because it's it's blowing. I'm like, yeah, but how'd you know it was a wind? I don't know. I can see what it's doing. I'm like, exactly, right? So you know, know the wind. You know where it's coming from. You can't control it, but you could see its effects, right? This is how it works with the Spirit of God. You don't know how the gospel can be proclaimed to a room this size or a stadium full of people and some people be saved and some people yawn. You don't know how some people can be raised in church and have no attunement to Jesus Christ and no give us not about him and others can can live their whole life of purity and live on the mission field and give themselves. We don't know how that works, but here's what he says. You you, you can't disqualify its existence just because you can't see it, just because you don't know that it's there. He says the, the Spirit of God is working in incredible ways, Nicodemus. And you can absolutely witness his power, and you're about to. The story goes on. We're going to see people transform. Peter, the other, the other disciples, you are going to see him transform from cowardly, weak individuals who give themselves for Jesus. Like, it's incredible what's coming. It's incredible. Here's my question for you. Have you been born again? Have you been born again? Like, of course I'm a Christian no have you been born again because you're not really a Christian unless you've experienced this new birth and here's the deal we talk about new birth but I think some of the, 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 the impact of this is lost because of our modern technology and I'm not trying to make light of what any of you ladies have done in giving birth because I've been in the room for, for, for that to happen three times and let me tell you um, it wasn't without some work somebody in that room was working wasn't me right Birth comes with the labor and the pain of another, doesn't it? The the one being born doesn't do the, the work. But it comes at the cost of another, doesn't it? It comes at the labor of another. And imagine the intensity of no epidurals, no hospitals, no comfort. That birthing a child often led to the death of the mom. That often in order to bring new life into the world, there was the cost of the mom and certainly the, the labor and the pain of the mom. Amen, moms? Amen? The forever impact of the body of the mom. My, my wife has to remind our kids regularly when she jumps on the trampoline. Like, it's just not the same now. I did not get her permission to say that, but, but y'all know. Y'all know the new birth. Birth comes at the cost, the labor, and the pain of another. Here's the deal. You don't have to wonder how you can get your life in order. You don't have to wonder how you can become a Christian. No, no. Jesus has done it for you. It is not without labor. It is not without cost, but Jesus has done the work and he has paid the price. He has spilled his own blood to bring you into new life and a new birth. Have you trusted him or are you playing some religious game? Let's pray. Father, I don't know the fullness of all that you hope to accomplish in this place with these people, um, with this word, but I pray that you would make us a people receptive to the to the the wind of the Spirit blowing where it will, causing us to, to worship, causing us to let go of our life, causing people to be saved. Lord, I pray that you would do that, that you would bring new life from darkness, from lostness, from religious from morality that you would bring new life. That we would be a people who may see and rejoice and cannot wait till the fullness of your kingdom coming. Right now we can cling to the power of the present age where your, your future resurrection power has come and met us in the present and is causing us to be born again. May we lean into that more and more. It's in your name, Jesus, amen.